0: This morning we have an opportunity to continue the sermon series in the book of Acts that E.C. began last Sunday. Um, as, as we begin, I want to focus on a couple of quick thoughts, the first of which is that this whole book is, is an act of transition. It's a transition from the ministry of Jesus, which E.C. spoke about last week, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a transition from Jesus' building kingdom to his disciples' building kingdom, and so as we look at what we're talking about this morning, it's going to be a, a focus on transitioning. What, what E.C. talked about last week was what Jesus began to do and teach, because in the beginning, um, he, Luke writes, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so E.C. was focusing on what Jesus did in bringing kingdom and what Jesus taught about the nature of kingdom. Jesus is preparing now his disciples for the transition, following his resurrection, to carry on the ministry of the kingdom, and we're going to look at that in particular in a moment. But one of the things that Jesus taught, and taught clearly, both by his teaching in his life, but also post-resurrection, is the reality that the kingdom is neither spiritual nor material. It's both. We can't Think of a spiritual kingdom. We can't anticipate merely a spiritual eternity. We will be living in the new earth. We will have bodies. That's why the quote on the front of the bulletin from N.T. Wright is, I think, particularly appropriate. Western Christians have imagined that at the end of the day, God is going to throw the present space-time universe into a trash can and we will be sitting on the clouds playing harps the ultimate future that, we pro- that we're promised is much more interesting than that. It's a new heavens and a new earth with new bodies to live in. Jesus is very clear that this is a combination of material and spiritual. In fact, it's a reference back to the creation. Because as God creates Adam, he creates, from the Hebrew, nefesh hawa, a living spirit an embodied spirit. And so for us, as we think about the kingdom that we're called to build, E.C. did a great job last week talking about we can't simply give up now, we can't give up this world, we can't anticipate a ministry that doesn't do things like save families. We need to live in the reality of now in order to be faithful to the kingdom. There was a conference this last week called Together for the Gospel, and in that conference there was a about a two minute section that I saw from Ligan Duncan, who is a professor at, at uh, the PCA Seminary um, in Jackson, Mississippi, in the heart of the South. And one of the things that he was talking about was how we're now coming, and he is now coming to realize that the Southern Presbyterian Church had for two centuries ignored the impact of the Second Commandment on the issue of slavery. And he spoke in that brief section, and if you have any questions about it, I'll forward it to you. It's on Facebook. It's part. You can also get the whole um, podcasts from T4G um, that talk about this particular topic. But what he talks about is the fact that it's taken him 30 years to understand the implications of the Second Commandment on the issue of race. We can't live with a spiritual focus without also living with a material focus and be faithful to the kingdom. It is, it is the combination of the two. And so we're going to see that as we look at the whole issue of the kingdom this morning. But one of the things that, that is just a small touch in the passage we're going to look at this morning is, is in the very beginning of verse 4, where it talks about staying. Staying. Because that Greek term staying also has the concept of eating. And we see throughout Jesus' resurrection that his disciples touch him because he's materially present. That he eats with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And here, as he's preparing to leave and be um, ascended, he eats. Because if you look at the footnote, if you have the ESV, there's a little one right there by the word staying because that word has dual meaning. It has the idea of gathering, staying, but it has the idea of eating and fellowship. And so Jesus is demonstrating, even in this time, the reality of the combination of spiritual and material reality. Let me read the passage, and then let me open in prayer. Acts 1, 4 through 6. Father, we do thank you for the truth of Scripture, for the work of Christ both to redeem, to sanctify, to transform. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear the truth of your word, we ask that you would use this truth to shape us, to call us into even greater ministry and greater confidence of our service for Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity on the reality of the kingdom ministry to which you have called us, that which is both spiritual growth and spiritual truth being spread, but also dealing with righteousness in this material world. For we live in both. We are embodied spirits. And we cannot deny either our spiritual or our material realities. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would equip us with a richer understanding of the work of the Spirit in our lives but also, Lord Jesus, of the call we have to build your kingdom for your glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Luke is talking about what Jesus began to do and teach, and he's talking in the book of Acts about how the Holy Spirit continues that ministry of Jesus. As we look at this, we're recognizing that in the beginning of this ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples... That, that we have a calling to understand the role of the Spirit in our lives. So, I want to look at the what, and I'm going to look at the how. The what is the command that Jesus gave to the disciples. It's while He's staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the presence of the Spirit. The truth of the matter is, Jesus has done the ministry that Jesus came to do. He has begun a new phase of kingdom ministry. That phase of ministry is now being continued through disciples, which is us, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are told, wait for the baptism in the Holy Spirit promised by the Father. And then Jesus goes into that contrast between the baptism of John which is a wonderful gift. It's a washing. It is a, it is a Jewish practice to wash for the idea of cleansing. But it's not enough. We can't, we can't do what we're called to do in the kingdom apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Reformed believers, especially those who have a long pedigree of Reformed, We tend, in many ways, to focus on the work of Christ, and we're really good about understanding the work of the Father, but we sometimes come up fairly ignorant about the work of the Spirit. Jesus is saying here, you can't do ministry. You can't be in Christ apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, with with the baptism of the Spirit that comes at Pentecost, the presence of the Spirit in a clearer, more remarkable way, it's not the beginning work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the first time believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, believers have the Holy Spirit in some form from the beginning. But there is something remarkable and unique and new that's happening in the the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost that focuses us on the fact that Jesus has done his redemptive work, and now it's time for us to grow. So Jesus compares the baptism of John, which is the baptism with water for the forgiveness of sins, to the baptism we receive in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting to me that the way he phrases it is, John baptizes, which is something that we could do. We we can baptize with water. We can repent, which is a wonderful gift. We confess every week in in the service our sins for the forgiveness of those sins. But there's something unique that we receive. He doesn't say the Father will baptize you. He says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's focusing on the fact that we receive in a new and more clear way the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from Mark 1, the the story in the gospel, comparing what John himself says about the baptism with water. Mark 1, 4. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ to bring about redemption is absolutely foundational and necessary for the presence of the Holy Spirit. In John 14 through 16, Jesus is giving his final discourse to his disciples on the way to Gethsemane which is where he prepares for his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. In that conversation, he speaks predominantly about the work that the Holy Spirit is going to do in the next phase of the kingdom. I want us to think for a moment about the fact that when, when we think about repentance, there is a tremendous gift that we receive. But when I repent, my focus, like Isaiah chapter 6, is on the removal of my sin. Unlike Isaiah chapter 6, I'm not face-to-face with God in a tangible way. And the temptation that I experience is to be focused on the fact that I can have a clean bill of health. I can, by the repentance, as I confess my sin, stand. Stand. I can be once again righteous before the Father. And the focus is on me. The focus is on me to such a degree that it's a temptation for me to sin by focusing on me. It's a comforting thing to have a a right standing with God. But I can hoard that right standing with God and stay in that place of righteousness and abandon the kingdom. What Jesus is doing in this transition is he is guiding the disciples to be aware that, yes, there is a tremendous gift of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But that's not the end goal. When we repent, we have not accomplished what Jesus calls us to accomplish. That's just the starting point. Because what Jesus calls us to accomplish is to build the kingdom. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It refers back to what Jesus did in healing, in um, forgiving, in bringing people to a right and strong standing to give them a position from which they can act. But the whole point is to take the disciples to this point where it now becomes clear you are the ones to carry this ministry on. Not alone. Not simply on the basis of repentance and forgiveness of sins, but in the power of the Spirit. We need to be aware, both for our sanctification, but also for our kingdom ministry, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can't act apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can't grow in righteousness apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need Father, Son, and Spirit. But we've received the Holy Spirit in this time and in this age for the purpose of growth and kingdom building. So, when we look at but you will receive by baptism the Holy Spirit not many days from now, What's happening here is a shift, a transition in our focus. It's not about us. It's about kingdom. And because it's about kingdom, it's about king. It's about the ruler, Jesus Christ, who has established the kingdom and the work of building kingdom to us. If I'm focusing on repentance, I'm content with justification. I have a good standing. God has declared me righteous. But what a horrible thing to be justified and not sanctified. What a horrible thing to be told that you are, by your record, righteous and to remain a powerless slave to sin. You would forever be anticipating what is to come, what 1 Peter 1 talks about in terms of the inheritance that is guaranteed to you, imperishable, unfading, and unspoiled, while at that same time you are completely aware, like Isaiah before the presence of God, of your unworthiness. God loves us too much to justify without sanctifying. But as he sanctifies, we're called To ministry. So life in the kingdom is a life of work. It's a life of service. It's not about waiting for Jesus to finish his work and return and simply passing time until he does. We see the disciples' misunderstanding of kingdom when they say to Jesus in verse six Are you now at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's wrong in several ways. It focuses on the work of Jesus and not on the work of the disciples. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's too narrow. The kingdom is not Israel. The kingdom is all of humanity. Jew and Gentile. Paul does a great job of expressing that when he talks about the leveling field of the gospel. He does a great job of expressing that when he goes back to what Jesus did with cleansing the temple and and removing the barrier to Gentiles being in the court of the Gentiles in the temple in the presence of God. Kingdom is more than Israel, and it's more than simply removing the Romans and establishing a peaceful rule while we await eternity. Kingdom is about righteousness, Kingdom is something that God calls us to build. And so there are several examples that I want to bring to your attention that talk about how dangerous it is for us to think about our ministry after Jesus. One human example is that of Joshua in Joshua 1. The story is that Moses has led the Israelites from Egypt to the very boundaries of the Promised Land. And then he dies. So in Joshua 1, we read this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So the issue is Joshua is in the presence of God. God speaking to him. But if you can associate with Joshua and think about you have followed Moses for 40 years and seen Moses do the 10 plagues, cross the Red Sea, bring water from rocks, bring manna every morning, bring quail every evening, and lead people whose clothes neither developed holes, whose shoes didn't wear out. God, God used Moses in a powerful way to be able to care for the people for 40 years and to bring military victory. Now you're Joshua. Joshua. You're on the boundary of the promised land, and Moses is gone. And then God comes and has a conversation with you. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Oh my goodness. I can't do this. I can't accomplish it. It's Much like the woman in the video this morning, it's too big. But then God's continuing. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. It was not Moses. It's not going to be Joshua. It's God. It is Jesus. Jesus does die, he does ascend, he does leave. But in John, as he's preparing the disciples, he says, it's to your good that I leave. Because I'm sending the Comforter. I'm sending the Counselor. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 25, we read, a parable that Jesus tells at the end of his ministry as he's preparing his disciples for this transition of his departure and the coming of the Spirit. It's the parable of the talents. You're familiar with the story. The issue is there are three servants. There's one master. The master's going to leave for a period of time, but he wants his work to continue. And so he gives five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to the third. The first two are eager and excited to take what has been entrusted to them for building. They're eager to enter into ministry, to take the gift given by the master and to build his wealth. And so the first one, as the master delays and is gone for a long period of time, is able to take those five talents and buy more. He has 10 talents. The second one is able to take those two talents and invest them and build and bring two more, so he has four talents. But the third buries the talent. For you see, the first two had a love of the master. The first two weren't concerned about whether they would lose their talents. They wanted to accomplish something for the good of their master. And so they invested, they built, they labored, they sacrificed so that they could bring more to their master. The third knew the master to be a harsh taskmaster, knew the master to judge unfairly. The third loved himself and hated the master. So he buried the talent in order to be able to give the master back exactly what he had entrusted to him when he came back. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, the calling that we have is on the basis of what Jesus has done on the ministry that he established, on the teachings that he gave us, on the revelation he makes of the Father and the Spirit to love him. As we love him, the focus of our life is to honor and glorify him. In other words, to build kingdom. How? How in the world can we do this? We're like Joshua, looking at a land that is to be conquered, and I can't even get across the river. I'm stuck. I have an unbelievable number of people to feed. I can't do that. Until I know that as god was with moses god will be with me brothers and sisters we have the holy spirit 1 corinthians says do you not know that you are the temple of god and that the holy spirit dwells in you there is no limit to your power there is no limit to what you can do out of your love for jesus to build kingdom and probably the most difficult place to start that is in our hearts because that is the place where change must come. We talked about a spiritual and material reality. We we are embodied spirits. Luke 6 says that out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So who I am will determine what I do, both in how I think, how I speak, in my spiritual experience, but also in my physical. And so in our time and place... To build kingdom means, first and foremost, for us to repent. But out of that repentance, it means for us to act. Ezekiel 36, much like John 14, verse 15, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to follow my commands and obey my decrees. The first order of business for us is a heart change. To love Jesus. 1 John 4.19 says that we love him because he first loved us. And so the focus for us is on, indeed, what Luke focuses on in the beginning, what Jesus did. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus did not save us simply to save us. Jesus saved us to equip us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit as Pentecost happens to build kingdom, to love him, and by loving him to accomplish good, both spiritually and materially. So we commit by the power of the indwelling spirit to battle sin and its effects wherever we see it. I want that to sink in for you. In this new time we commit by the power of the indwelling Spirit. It's not our ability. When you begin to think about how difficult it is to battle your own sin, you're right, it is. But you have the Holy Spirit. You have the sanctifying work of God who says, "Did you having begun by the Spirit in Galatians 3.3, 3, are you being made perfect by human effort? No, we're being made perfect. We're being completed by the power of the Spirit at work in us. But our focus, if we have the presence of the Spirit, can't be exclusively us. Our focus is battling sin wherever we see it. It's battling sin's effects wherever we see them. It is living the power of the gospel for redemptive change in this world. And the Spirit will lead you. The Spirit will convict you. But the Spirit will not allow you to sit still. So one of the things that I think that's really important for us is to understand that this is both a personal growth, but it's also a systemic growth. It is a corporate growth. Every Sunday we come and we have the opportunity to confess our sin both together, but also alone. One of the things I think about our service is that that silent confession is excessively short. I don't know that we are, by the time we allow to the confession of silent sin, that we're communicating a good message because I think it ought to be as long as a sermon. So I encourage you this week to take that time of silent confession and extend it. To be able to think honestly, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is a hurtful way in me, and lead me, in the way everlasting. We need to be a confessing people because before we'll ever do kingdom work, we have to understand the reality of confession and the reality of forgiveness because it is the Spirit who communicates and who gives us that sense of standing before God. The focus that we have to have. I I mentioned it in Luke 6, 45. The focus that we have to have is the heart. My heart, your heart. Because who I am in that identity determines what I do. My heart will either determine that I act in anger, that I act in selfishness, that I act in greed, that I act in hatred, or my heart will pour out righteousness. My heart will see injustice and fight. My heart will see the wounds of those around me and care. Brothers and sisters, what you do reflects your heart what you don't do reflects your heart the spirit will speak spirit will empower the spirit will sanctify let me pray father we do need the trinity We need Father, who created and loved the world and sent his Son. We need Jesus, who came and lived that righteous life and faced the condemnation for our sins on the cross, who rose and gives us new life. But we also need the Spirit. Desperately, we need the Spirit. We need, in this time, to recognize that we are temples in whom the Spirit dwells. And we need to know the work of the Spirit both to give us confidence in our acceptance but also to empower us to live as new creatures who bring about change. Lord, please, this week, give us grace to battle the indwelling sin we we wrestle with. Sanctify us. Whether that sin is secret and personal, whether that sin is visible, whether that sin is misunderstanding the reality of grace in my own life or whether that sin is a callous, hard heart that doesn't care about the wounds and the needs of others. We ask, Lord, that you would send revival. We ask that you would redeem. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.